Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks, Knight Frank's research podcast. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Research Analyst, and I'm joined today by our Head of International Residential Research, Kate Everett Allen, and Lee Elliott, Global Head of Occupy Research. Um, Lee, I think it's been about a year since you've been on the podcast. Got some interesting boxing photos behind you. Yeah, hi Anna. Great to be here once again. Yeah, Ian Botham, Muhammad Ali, uh, Roger Bannister, all the sporting icons are in my study keeping me company as I <laughs> try and make sense of the future of the office. And Kate, uh, you've been on a few times uh, last year. Uh, how, how have things been for you? Things have been good, busy, a lot of clients keen to get our crystal balls out. And then on a personal note, obviously schools are back. So that is a relief. <laughs> Always a relief. I think we could all agree with that. <laughs> Excellent. So in terms of the podcast today, I mean, we're really focusing on the sort of intersection between office and home. Actually, you both just touched on that. And remarkably, we saw a complete absence, really, of the office in um, Boris Johnson's roadmap. So we're all slightly hanging on an edge here. And we've also seen very divergent views as well around the return to work. So, for example, in the UK this week, we've seen the Bank of England governor saying a hybrid model will prevail. Magic Circle law firm Freshfields has said its lawyers can work from home up to 50% of the time in both London and Manchester. But it has stressed that this will be an interim approach. But others like Goldman Sachs have said they want all of their staff back into the office by the end of the summer. So Lee, given all of these different views, where do we stand? What do you think June will look like when we get there? Well, I think there are two issues, Anna. So I think the first one is the immediate reoccupancy of of, of the office, probably in in May to June, as, as you say, notably absent in the Prime Minister's roadmap. And that will be a steady process of reoccupancy as we make spaces COVID secure and and, and almost go back to where we were at the end of the the autumn of last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then I think there's a second point, which is once we get through that process of reoccupancy and and getting up to some degree of capacity, what's the longer term future for our interaction with and our relationship with the office. And I think, as you rightly point out, there's a huge degree of variability. Yeah, yeah, of course. What we've got is quite a spectrum of responses. Goldman Sachs, they're very much in the camp of everybody's coming back, no ifs, no buts. Mm. And then on the other hand, you've got the tech companies at the other end of the spectrum that are talking about working from anywhere. For the majority of occupiers, classic bell curve distribution, the majority will be in the middle. But what does the middle look like when you when you describe the middle? Are we are we talking say three days in the office, two days at home? What what does that look like? Well, I think there's no doubt that employees, if you look at employee surveys, a recent survey suggested sort of about eighty five percent of people like the idea of a a three or four day a week in the office, other day or two days remote. Yeah. There's a push towards a greater degree of flexibility in working arrangements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have seen that sort of be become a little bit of a groundswell of opinion from employees on employers roster who who knows my view is the middle looks like a, a more flexible appreciation of how people engage with the office and ultimately a form of work where remote working is for some people for some tasks for some of the time we've got a debate that's too extreme at the moment and too at the you know too at the far end of the of the headline grab in terms of you know how people are choosing to live and what it is quite unsettling to see all these very extreme different views. We, I mean, we've had twelve months of where we're in. We've been in the eye of the storm, and you know, been a lot of revolutionary tone. And I yeah. think that's inevitable when you're in unprecedented times. Okay. We'll move away from revolution and we'll get towards evolution. And let's not forget some of those flexible working processes were already in train before we got to the crisis. So. 
um, I think we'll start to see them come back into into play, uh, as I say, for some people, for some tasks. Okay. And, and Kate, another sort of quiet revolution, perhaps quieter than the office, has been um, the kind of increasing desire to get more space and live in perhaps more suburban areas. But what, what do we mean by suburbs in the UK, US versus Asia? What are you seeing globally? I think that's, that's a really interesting point. We've talked a lot and the headlines have certainly been dominated over the last few months about this shift from sort of urban living to suburban or even rural living. Um and I think that means different things in different places. So it's quite a, a European or North American bias to that trend. My colleague in Singapore, Justin Eng, one of our researchers, highlighted that it doesn't really apply to large parts of Asia and other emerging markets. So urbanization in, in large parts of those areas still is very aspirational. If you live in Beijing or Seoul, and you want more space as a result of the pandemic, you would potentially buy a larger apartment, potentially with some outdoor space, a balcony, roof terrace or something, maybe close to a park. But you're unlikely to uproot and return to rural markets where employment is harder to find. Okay. And I think the housing stock in Asian cities differs quite significantly as well to the rest of the UK or Europe. So your suburbs don't tend to be larger detached homes with gardens is still very much dominated by apartment stock. It's just less dense. Well, a large part of our colleagues in Asia are already back into the office, maybe on a rotation mm. system. But I think Asia might be yeah. might lead the way on that. Um, whereas Europe and the US, with many having moved out to suburban markets and wanting to adopt, say, a two or three day week in the office, we might see more of a hybrid yeah. role in those markets. Yeah, just just to come in on that point, I, I think we are in danger of getting into a quite an Anglo-Saxon or American-centric sort of debate in, in, in global terms. I mean, mm. if you look at Asia and its return to work, I mean, firstly, they've had experience of pandemics before, so they've been able to mobilise those plans and get the workplace safe and get people back into the workplace much quicker than we've managed in the West and as Kate rightly points out, a very different approach to what suburban means or even what residential means in some of these markets, and particularly mm. for perhaps those less privileged to have you know, large amounts of space. A lot of the spaces in dense urban centres in Asia uh, you know, don't necessarily provide dwellings that are conducive to remote working or home working. And as a result, that's also been a driver towards people returning to the office in, in greater number. So I think we need to be careful that a global debate doesn't become a UK and US centric debate. I think there's a, a, a greater degree of nuance in this return to work uh, than mm. perhaps the debate has would have us believe. I, I guess on that train of thought, Lee, what, what's been quite interesting from a UK angle, it has been towns that are sort of relatively near London looking to sort of lure in workers. We heard of Ipswich and Suffolk this week, for example, looking at setting up flexible working space and things like that. And, and actually that's been the case in some of the London suburbs as well. I mean, how seriously should we be taking that? Do you think that, you know, if you're living in a suburb, your employer might sort of lease some office space for you? How, you know, how seriously should we be following these things? Yeah, I, I think it's a dynamic that's under consideration. I wouldn't say, again, it's the norm yet. IWG, you know, who run the Regis brand, amongst others, are making a big play on this, that the, the suburbs are, are, are where the action's going to be. Uh, you know, and actually 12 months ago or nine months ago, I was talking about WC2H working closer to home as being something in, as opposed to, uh, to WFH working from home. And that would play to the suburbs. There's a lot of talk in the occupational world 
about the rise of so-called hub and spoke models of occupancy where you put your hub office in the, in a CBD and then you have your spokes um, you know around spread around London. I don't think that's possible for most occupiers to deliver. They're not going to start putting spokes in the ground around in a dotted around London because it's very hard to know where to put those. People are naturally quite dispersed uh, in the home counties and beyond. So uh, I think if there is a spoke model that emerges in the suburbs, it's likely to be delivered through co-working operators or service flex operators such as IWG and, and other others. Essentially, staff get the option to have a, a setting closer to home in association and conjunction with the offer of a, a stronger, more compelling hub office. Okay, and who do, who do you think will be likely to sort of take that, that offer up? I mean, we've talked to previously around how this has all impact different sectors of the population, but I guess for, for different age groups, this means different things. You've described all of this upheaval as the great sort of workplace experiment before. So, h- how do you think? How do you see this playing out for different generations? Yeah, I mean, I've never been an, an advocate, really, of all these different generational distinctions. You know, I used to get sick to the back teeth of hearing about millennials, probably because I'm not one of them. <laughs> um, but actually, you know, I think in this regard, you know, I've spoken to many business leaders who are concerned about their younger staff that are on the early part of their careers, who are potentially working off the edge of beds or on ergonomically un- mm. unsound desks and the like, yeah. and, and also missing out on valuable le- tacit learning opportunities by being in the office. So I, I think that demographically that working closer to home piece may play well to a younger demographic, but I, I'd, I'd urge people to think that it's not at the cost of people going into the hub. There's a very strong rationale for having hub offices that enable people to connect, collaborate, learn, socialise, all the things that we've probably been missing over the last 12 months. Okay. And from a residential point of view, Kate, given we can tentatively think about even working abroad a few weeks a year, who does that benefit and how do you think that will impact sort of global residential trends going forward? The whole sort of second home repercussions could be quite significant. They're undoubtedly going to get a lot more usage, whether they're based in the UK or on the continent as a result of more flexible working policies. So people will look to spend maybe two or three months a year rather than two or three weeks a year potentially in those those second homes. But the demands and the expectations on those homes will change as a result. So the specification that people want in terms of home offices, gyms, etc., at the very prime end, that is. And we've talked about it in the Wealth Report, actually, about this birth of the what we're calling the co-primary home, or some people are calling the 50-50 home. So the, the split between primary and secondary residences, where your second home might be less of a higher spec, might start to change. Interesting that there will be a generational split, similar to what Lee was saying. If you're looking to spend more than three months in your second home a year, that will mainly be tied to young professionals or maybe even empty nesters. Um, Mm -hmm. So there will definitely be that variation, particularly with schools now going back in the UK and in most parts of Europe and the US. Families will find it harder to spend like they did last summer, extended periods of time. Certainly they can probably go for a long summer um, but it's unlikely that they'll be able to spend longer than that. Plus, for Britons, you've got the post-Brexit era. You've got the, the 90 out of every 180-day rule that will now apply. I don't think that's a massive game-changer for most second homeowners, but I think it's more relevant for those mm-hmm. retirees, for example, who would normally look to spend, say, six months, the winter okay. months, over in south of Spain or, or France, etc., I think we'll also see the demand generally for second homes increase. The Bank of England said I think this week that by June, 
those Britons who've seen their incomes remain much the same, but their spending plummet over the last three lockdowns will have amassed something like £250 billion in savings, which is the equivalent to 20% of the amount households spend each year. So for high earners, I expect if they don't already own a second home, either in the UK or abroad, then it may start to appear on their, on their shopping lists once they get the green light the business that mm, they're yeah. able to have that flexible working long term. Yeah, it was certainly be interesting to see, you know, once, as you say, if people have been sitting on savings, sort of what the result that will be. And I guess if there is a desire to work and live more abroad, once all these international restrictions ease, to kind of see how that plays out on a global basis. We normally finish with an under the radar story. So I'm going to pick on you firstly for some thought provoking piece of news that you've seen this week. Can you tell us what you've heard and, and why it's interesting? A lot of this conversation has been about changing work styles and uh, a greater flexibility, both in where we work and how we work. Um, one story that grabbed my attention this week was Spain, you know, politically in Spain, a suggestion that they might move to a four day working week. Whether it's got legs or not, I won't, I won't judge. But what I would say is interesting that debate's even being had. And it aligns with a, a debate that's been going on in the corporate world for a while in uh, Microsoft in Japan last year uh, as a pilot put their staff onto a four-day working week and found that actually productivity levels went up. So just generally interesting, whilst it might not have any road to run as a story, and it may be politically motivated, the notion that we're even thinking about changing the notion of a working week is actually a healthy debate and something we should be having more of. So they lo- are they looking at piloting it on a sort of national scale then? I think at the moment it's an aspiration politically as opposed to something there okay. that's likely to land anytime soon. And, uh, and that's why I'm slightly cautious about it. But certainly... The Microsoft example was deemed a success, at least promoted as such. Yeah, unsurprising, really, isn't it? I mean, it'd be quite hard to to get negative feedback on a four-day week, I'd imagine. I think that's probably right, yeah. (laughs) Kate, how about you? What's caught your eye in the news that we might have missed on global residential markets, perhaps? So mine's sort of general property story. Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, has asked the Reserve Bank of New Zealand to consider the state of the housing market when it makes its policy decisions going forwards. In and of itself, that might not sound that critical, but where New Zealand has gone in the past, other central banks have followed. So New Zealand, for example, was the first country to set inflation targets, and this has subsequently become the norm um, central banks will obviously consider inflation and employment, but it's it's not been the norm for them to consider the direction of, of house prices. And obviously, New Zealand have adopted that measure because or, or taken that step because they are concerned about house price affordability. We have recently published our global house price index and New Zealand is in second place in terms of annual growth. So prices there increased 19% in 2020. And I think we might see that that change start to be adopted in other markets around the world where there is that concern around affordability and and housing costs. New Zealand, again, leading on another big agenda. Uh, They've had quite a big year, (laughs) generally, haven't they? Pioneering state, I think, yeah. Uh, Listen, thank you both so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks very much. For more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note, which goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. You can see our show notes for more details on that. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and listen out for next week's episode with Patrick Gower. Thanks again for listening.